Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tell Me More. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Meyer. On the show, we break down some of the worst conversations in healthcare. Why? Because I believe that together we can build better ones. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Tell Me More, Better Conversations in Healthcare. I am so jazzed about this episode. It's just going to be just personally so rewarding for me uh, on a lot of different levels. So I am talking to Jacob. He now goes by Jacob. I've known him as Jakey. Jacob George, who is a amazing young man headed to med school very soon. Um, if you haven't guessed already, I know Jake personally. Uh, I've known him since he was a wee baby. Uh, he, our kids grew up together. Jake and my son are the best of friends. Uh, but I don't do podcast episodes just with people I like. There's always a purpose and a mission. So the purpose of today's episode is to talk about something so, so, so important. And that is the paucity of bone marrow donors in this country and why we need to do something about that. So for those that don't know, Jake um, has had his own medical trial, which made him quite passionate about bone marrow donation specifically. So Jake, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on, Dr. Meyer. <laughs> it's so weird <laughs> calling me that, but we'll keep it slightly professional. Um, so Jake, can you tell, tell our audience, you know, in, in sort of layman's terms, what you went through, uh, five years ago now, I guess. Yeah. Five years. And I think, I think this winter will be six years since I was first diagnosed. Wow. And, and what I was diagnosed with is severe aplastic anemia, which was frankly, a term that I had never heard of before, <laughs> before I was diagnosed with. And very simply put, it's just a failure of your bone marrow and the bone marrow that produces all of your blood cells that um, carry oxygen throughout your body and like fight infection. Just simply put, it was failing me and it was just dying off. And then we mm -hmm. had to proceed from there. Right. So, oh boy, I can't believe it's been six years, first of all, but I remember this so, so vividly. I remember <clears throat> you had like abdominal pain and there was maybe like an appendicitis thing and you ended up in the ER, right? Mm -hmm. And they did some blood work. It turns out it wasn't your appendix. Although to be honest with you, like appendicitis would have been a billion times better than what you ended up yeah. having, right? <laughs> So this uh, this random blood count is abnormal. And I remember your mom, Dr. Jesse John, who is, you know, one of my dearest friends in the world, kind of like saying, hey, what do you think of this? This looks a little weird. I'm like, ah, he probably just had a little bug. Don't worry about it. That's why these numbers are abnormal. And then the numbers got repeated and repeated and repeated. And they were not just abnormal, getting worse, basically mm -hmm. just looking like exactly like you said, your bone marrow was not producing cells. So take it from there, Jake. So this is the, uh, it was like December, January timeframe, right? Uh, winter of, was it 2019? Winter of 2018. Winter of 2018. So 2017 going into 2018. Right. And yeah, okay. so it had first started with a trip to the ER at Chester County Hospital with that stomach pain. And they ruled out appendicitis. They, they like, he's fine. 
you'll be fine. Just continue to monitor that. But then over time, it just kept getting worse in which that like, at the time I was just a teenager, I'd be playing video games in the basement. I walk upstairs to the kitchen and like, I'm visibly fatigued and lightheaded just from going up the stairs. And we were like, something's not right. This is Mm -hmm. not like, he's not getting better. There's more things that are popping up. And what we had to do from there is that we got these bone marrow biopsies at at um, CHOP in, in King of Prussia in which they took they took some bone marrow out of my hip bone. Basically, they stuck a needle into my bum area mm-hmm. and they did an analysis of that and to confirm that, yeah, my bone marrow is not working anymore. It's disappearing and we need to do something about it. And so, so uh, let me just pause for a second. For those that, you know, might not be familiar, bone marrow function is critical to life. So without your bone marrow, you die. Aplastic anemia is very simply put a life-threatening condition if it's untreated. Um, Number one, I just want to be super clear about how critical this Mm -hmm. illness was. And number two, you know, a needle in your bum, you know, that sounds like, you know, somebody giving you a weird vaccine (laughs) or penicillin shot. But what you really had was like a gigantic bore drill (laughs) into your hip bone so that bone marrow could be extracted. So immediately, like, that's not a fun procedure. You're just, that sucked, right? Mm -hmm. And then you get the news. Your bone marrow is in fact failing you. It is, aplastic anemia is confirmed. So then you start thinking about treatment options, right? So tell me about that. So- Uh, what I remember, like, it's all getting started, starting to get hazy at the time, because also, like, it, I want to put it in the context that I was a teen in high school, and, like, I was focused on different things, like, although, like, my, my parents were super worried, like, at the time, the gravity of the situation hadn't hit me yet, so I don't know if I was just kind of along for the ride, Mm -hmm. letting you and my parents figure everything out, like, at the time, I, like, I was worried about my biology test on Monday, you know, because I was still <laughs> in school in the time. Right. Um, but I remember that we would, we I would sometimes take off from school to visit these different hospitals. Like we went to Philadelphia, we went to Manhattan, we went to Baltimore, and we would get all these different um, opinions from different hematologists about what we should do. And we went to three different institutions and we had three, I would say, widely different opinions from each hematologist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I remember that in Philadelphia, the the treatment program they were recommending is a stem cell transplant. And it was very, it was very scary to me. They were like, Mm -hmm. you're going to have to get this done. You're going to go after, they explained to me as if it was um, cancer treatment, because it was very similar. Like, you're going to have to go through chemotherapy, radiation, and get this stem cell transplant. And guess what? This whole time, you're going to be alone in a room by yourself for months on end. (laughs) That was so frightening to me. So Mm. we were like, yeah, we don't want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) But let's go, let's go find a better opinion that we like more. And then we all went up to Manhattan. And at this facility, at this institution, they had said, we have two different options. We can do one, that scary stem cell transplant which sounds terrible, but it's curative. We won't have to worry about this aplastic anemia ever again for you. Or our other option is to do 
what I think is, what was it? Just immunosuppressant therapy. Mm-hmm. You confirm that? Yeah. Yeah. And they say it's, um, it's less intense than the stem cell transplant, but you'll have to be doing this treatment for the rest of your life. From 17 to the end of your life, you're going to have to be dealing with this. Like aplastic anemia is always going to have some real estate in your mind, something to worry mm. about. Yeah. And and we we didn't like that. Since I was 17, we wanted to get over this obstacle and have it in the rearview mirror and just yeah. move on. Yeah. And that I remember that hematologist, he was more he's leaning more towards that treatment of dealing mm-hmm. with the rest of your life because he knew that the stem cell treatment could be really intense. Mm-hmm. And then so finally we went down to Baltimore and that's the hematologist that we settled with. Mm-hmm. And what I remember first that also just made a huge impact on me during that visit with him is that he turns to my parents and he just goes, listen, Jake is going to be okay. That's the first thing before talking about any options or anything, what the logistics of the treatment or whatnot. He's just like, listen, he's going to be fine. We'll get through this. And you could feel like they'll just weight off my shoulders. Like my mom's a pediatrician, but she was she wasn't a doctor in that room. She was just a oh, worried hell no. Mom. Yeah. Hell no. Yeah. Scared out of her mind. Right. And right. I, you could see that like tons of weight just lifted up off of her shoulders. And so I'm going to drop his name because I love him so much. Yes, Dr. please. Dr. Dr. Brodsky. He he was heavily leaning towards the stem cell treatment, but his protocol was very different from the other ones that we heard. Mm-hmm. He he had treated it like more as what an outpatient treatment kind of. I'd go into the hospital, I'd get my medications, get my chemotherapy, and then I'd go home for the day mm-hmm. if everything stays well. Like I can go home, I can hang out with my family, I can see my friends occasionally if they're wearing masks and all that. And we really liked how that was a lot more friendly of a treatment protocol. So we were, ultimately we went with them. So uh, let's pause for a second because you mm-hmm. said so many critical <laughs> things. First of all, when when you say we went to Philly and Manhattan and Baltimore, you went to world-class centers in those mm-hmm. places, right? So 100%. Uh, Sloan Kettering, uh, Hup, and... Johns Hopkins and Dr. Brodsky's at Johns Hopkins. So, you know, it's not like you were kind of dancing around. Let's see if we could do this in our backyard kind of thing. You were prepared to go wherever you had to go (laughs) to get the best treatment. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, I, I was in many of those visits and. Oh my God, I could cry just talking about it again, but I think that as a patient or as someone who loves a patient, um, those words, he is going to be okay, like period. (laughs) It doesn't even matter what else comes after that because there's so much to unpack in that simple sentence. One is, that's a fact, you're gonna be okay. But the other thing is this particular doctor knows this condition so well and this treatment so well and has treated so many people just like you so well that he just knows he just has that confidence so to me you know as someone who's 
terrified and I could only imagine what your mom and dad were going through but, and you, but just to know, like someone just took this from me. Someone took this fear from me because he knows better than I do. And, you know, for those that don't know, it sucks ass being a doctor and being in the position of being a patient or someone who cares about a patient because you know enough to be terrified, but it's not your thing, right? You Mm -hmm. need the person whose thing it is to make you feel better. So I agree with you 100%, Jake. I mean, uh, Hopkins is obviously Hopkins Mm -hmm. and the protocol was so much more gentle. uh, But Dr. Brodsky is the beginning and end of that whole thing. And very simply just with that sentence, just like you said. And so, but you make it sound like you're going to go down to Baltimore, you're going to get a thing, and then you're going to come back to Downingtown and chill, right? That's not what happened. (laughs) Yeah, no, it wasn't what happened at all. Um, Because in my head, like, I don't know, as a kid, you still have that invincibility mindset right yeah. that mentality right yeah. it's whatever like I'm I'm nothing like I'm I'm gonna live forever right you don't think anything's gonna be you don't think the rug's ever gonna get pulled out from under you mm-hmm. and what had happened is that the process took a lot longer and a lot more inpatient stuff than I expected during that journey So Dr. Brodsky is very clear, like stem cells, the way to go. Mm -hmm. Um, And tell me about that. So where do these stem cells come from? Typically, they come from generous donors. And mine (laughs) happened to be my own big brother. Wow. So at this time, if correct me if I'm wrong, but there it's called HLA typing. In yep. which there are certain genetic markers in everyone's bone marrow and blood that they mm-hmm. look forward, they look for when matching someone. You can't just yep. take any random person's blood bone marrow and give it to me because my yep. body will probably just reject it. Yep. And uh, that's a whole case of bad news. Right. So the the first steps before I started the treatment was to see if I had a match with anyone. So I remember that we contacted like all of our relatives. There's like, there's probably like 50 of my family in the Philadelphia area. And then everyone got sent a kit in which they had to simply just swab the inside of their cheek. That's where they get the the genetic info from. Swab Mm -hmm. the inside of their cheek, put it in a tube and mail it out. And so all of my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, and my brother who was out in Pittsburgh at the time completed that. And no one was a match that they were looking for except for my brother. And the strangest thing about it was, is that at Hopkins, I mean, at, in Philly and Manhattan, they wanted a perfect t- 10 out of 10 match. Right. And Justin wasn't a 10 out of 10 match. Yeah. He was an 8 out of 10 match. Yeah. But for Hopkins, they're like, actually, that's what we're looking for. He's perfectly imperfect. <laughs> and something about their <laughs> protocol that him being an eight out of a ten, eight out of 10 match, they were like, Justin is good to go. We can do this. So, yeah, I, I remember that distinctly too. Uh, first of all, your brother, Justin is a 10 out of 10 in my eyes. In every <laughs> way. So we will not disrespect him <laughs> in any way, but um, that's exactly right. So part of the hang up with these uh, other places is that they're looking for, this perfect match. So 
And already you are starting with a very limited pool of people. So it sounds like 50 family members is a lot, but it's really not when you're looking for 10 out of 10 genetic match, right? Mm -hmm. So you also, or someone did, I assume, searched the bone marrow registry for a 10 out of 10 match, right? Yeah. And there, nobody, there was nothing. Mm -mm. So there are, yeah, like there is a whole national database that we have in the United States for all of these people, including me, who need stem cells that are transplanted. And there's people that are all around the country who have registered by swabbing their cheek and their genetic info for those markers are just available. So that if anyone around the country needs needs a stem cell transplant and they're a match with someone, they can be available. But for me, I didn't have that available. I had to rely on my brother. So it's kind of like something in between, like when you donate blood and your, you know, your blood is typed and crossed and, you know, for someone to get blood, they have to be a match and a solid organ transplant where you register to be an organ donor. So stem mm -hmm. cell, I would say is somewhere in between there. Um, fortunately, you don't have to die to donate <laughs> your stem cells. So it's a much more appealing thing for people to think about, but Still, the genetic markers are a huge barrier. And tell me what you know, Jake, about, and I just, because I just want our audience to hear you talk about it, this is so important, about the, the ethnic diversity within the U.S. bone marrow registry. So who signs up to donate bone marrow or stem cells? Is it like everybody? Is it a giant melting pot of, uh, of donors? Mm -hmm. um, so... No, it's not a giant melting pot. It's not as diverse. I set that up for you. I literally like teed that up so well. <laughs> it's not it's not as diverse as we'd like it to be. So the reality is that most of these markers are related to your ethnicity. You're mm -hmm. more likely to match with someone who's of the same ethnicity of you as mm -hmm. you. And in America, it these national registries are mostly compiled of white Americans. And there's so many different factors that go into that, whether it's just the, the majority of the population and also other factors, just like education and awareness of it. Like I'm taking this is purely anecdotal, but my family, all my extended relatives have no idea what that was until yep. until my situation came up. They were like, yeah, they never heard of anything like that. Mm -hmm. And and it's just all those different factors that have compiled up in that if you're not a white American, it is a lot harder to get a match on these national bone marrow registries. So much so that I was collecting info from the Be The Match, which is one of these national registries, and that if you're a white American, you have a 79% chance of finding a match outside of your family. Mm -hmm. And every other ethnicity, it's close to 50% or like low, below wow. 50%. Wow. So I hadn't known that at the time, but I only found that out recently. And that, that realization just hit me. If it wasn't for, if it wasn't for Justin, I would have been in deep trouble there. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, there's, that is everything. So 
I mean, thank God you had a brother mm. and thank God he was an eight out of 10 match. And thank God that, you know, Hopkins and Dr. Brodsky, that's what they were looking for. It wasn't, it wasn't like every institution wants a perfect 10 out of 10, mm. but you know, we're talking about life or death here. And I know like, I, so I'm Egyptian, you're Indian, Egyptians don't do that, period. They they don't even give you a good reason. They're just like, now nah, we don't do that. Like <laughs> they don't <laughs> donate blood. They do, And I should not generalize. I'm sorry for everybody listening who's Egyptian and donates blood. I, I don't mean to generalize, but at least in my family, it's just not a thing we do. I, I, I don't understand it. It's, it would make a very interesting social experiment. But so certain ethnicities are definitely going to struggle. And if there isn't a family member and you are like, you could seriously be in trouble. Your life is in danger. So let's talk about the process, because I think that maybe if people understood what it means to register to be a bone marrow donor, it they wouldn't be so afraid of it or they'd be more likely to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned several times that it's basically a swab, cheek swab, stick it in a tube, send it in. It's no big deal. It's like a to, to check your uh, alleles, your HLA typing is like nothing. It's not even a needle, right? But to actually donate bone marrow or stem cells is a big deal, right? So can you walk us through? Well, first of all, I want people to hear what you went through. Let's start with mm -hmm. your process because before you can even receive Justin's bone marrow, what has to happen? They had basically... They were like, we got a clear house. <laughs> all of this, all of this dying bone marrow that's still in you, we got to get rid of it. We got to make <laughs> space for the this new one that's coming in, these new stem cells. So that was, that was what they were calling like day. If day zero was the day I received the transplant from Justin, the days before that was like day negative 30, basically. Mm -hmm. So I'd, I had to go through a lot of different things to prepare my body for this transplant. I went through chemotherapy and radiation and all these other therapies to basically suppress my immune response so that I'd be able to receive Justin's without fighting it off. And, and what was that like for you? I mean, I know what it looked like. It looked like hell on earth, <laughs> but what do you remember about that? It was, it was all such a blur. Like by then, so this was... April of 2018, I we moved out of Downingtown. We had rented out an apartment in Baltimore, like a block away from Hopkins. So I'd be very close to that. Like I said bye to everyone. And mm. after that, it was all like a blur, especially as a teenager there, because I wasn't in the pediatric side of Hopkins because um, Dr. Dr. Brodsky, he's an adult hematologist. Mm -hmm. So I spent my time with all the older adults there which was just just weird like I don't know <laughs> even though I was like 17 close to being 18 I still felt very out of place mm -hmm. and it, there wasn't any like fun decorations around like as <laughs> you usually expect at a pediatric hospital right it was just kind of all right you're gonna go do this we're gonna draw your blood you're gonna we're gonna put this catheter in your chest then we're just gonna xyz and that was every day in, day out. It all became mm. such a blur. I felt like I was 
not even in the passenger seat of the car. I felt like I was all the way in the trunk, just in this car wow. that was that was going. Like I just did my thing day in and day out and went home, not home, back to the apartment. And uh, I want to stop for a second because I <laughs> this apartment, right? So when when Dr. Brodsky is telling you like your protocol is, yeah, you get to do stuff and then you get to go home. Mm-hmm. You know, we were joking about how you're not going home to Downingtown. You're going home, meaning you get to leave the hospital. You don't have mm-hmm. to sleep in the hospital. But, you know, for us as a family, like the apartment is like capitalized, capital T-H-E, capital A, the apartment. And like, oh. Just thinking about it just gives me shivers and makes me nauseous because honestly, yes, it was nice to leave the hospital, but it was just an extension, right? It was an Mm -hmm. extension of the place. It was not home to you. We tried to make it home. Your parents were there. Your brother was there. But really, you were displaced for sure. Um, So so you you do your day-to-day stuff from day minus 30 or minus 45 or whatever. And then your bone marrow is cleared out. So your immune system is shot, right? Because now you have zero immune system. You've got chemo, you've got radiation. Um, so what was that like for you? You couldn't really have visitors, right? It it sucked. <laughs> <laughs> um, we had to be super, super careful about everything. Like I, we were... Masks are a very commonplace thing in our society now after the right. pandemic. But I was, we were all wearing masks in back in 2018 just to protect me. Mm-hmm. And at at that critical period in time, there were like no visitors allowed. It was just the immediate family was allowed to see me because anything, any infection I caught, even the slightest cold, would take me out. Mm. Like, and I remember I couldn't even see, I couldn't even see my dog because oh. he has so much bacteria and germs all <laughs> over him and he's like yeah your dog junior he he could kill you <laughs> this oh little tiny God. dog wow. and I remember that the transplant day itself was so anticlimactic mm-hmm. I had thought it was going to be like this big 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 operation I yeah, remember we're going to transplant <laughs> these cells to you I thought like I thought like it was going to be like me in one bed Justin and the other, like these big machines, like trans bone marrow. It wasn't that at all. (laughs) What what had happened was that earlier that day, they extracted Justin's bone marrow cells or stem cells, put it in a bag of blood, and they hung it up, connected it to my catheter, and they're like, "All right, we're just gonna let it slowly drip drip into you, and that's it." We just sat there for two hours, and that was that was it. It was um... so, so funny. That is exactly what I thought too. So let's back up for a second. And Mm -hmm. I I wish Justin was here because let's talk about the procedure to harvest those stem cells. Because for people who are listening who are like, hey, I need to be a bone marrow donor or a stem cell donor. um, Tell us what that was like for him as as much as you know, since you're sort of speaking for him. Yeah. Um. I'm definitely going to, I feel like I've been minimizing uh, the impact and gravity of a lot of these things so far, but for him, simply put, they, they stuck another big needle into his hip bone area to extract that. And, but it was, um, 
if I remember correctly, it wasn't like a major surgery. He didn't go under anesthesia. They just had a, a sedation around that area to numb that mm-hmm. area. Mm-hmm. And it was, if I remember correctly from what Justin said, it was really quick. And the only thing that he had to do after is just take it easy in terms of exercise. And the only effect that was on him is that his his hind area was a little sore <laughs> for like about a week. And then after that, he was completely fine. Right. Yeah, I actually think it's more than one uh, hole where they extract from. But yeah, basically you have sore buttocks and hips and and that's it. So uh, we were there the day the day of the transplant. Right. And exactly the same thing. Like I was picturing this like, you know, operating suite where like all these things are like happening and you had this super sweet nurse. I can't remember her name, but I have a picture of her um, who just literally walked in and it looked like you were getting a blood transfusion, hung this giant bag. And we were all sitting there like waiting for some magical thing to happen. And it was kind of anticlimactic, like nothing happened. So, so the bone marrow is in, but you don't just like dance out of there. Right. Mm -mm. Like then what happens? So, yeah, I just want to say that, like, even though that that whole procedure was so anticlimactic, that's what saved my life there. That that quiet two hours of just yeah. us sitting in the hospital room watching TV while we were watching TV, th- this bag of blood was saving my life. And mm. this is when the the hard part began that I remember that. <laughs> and they were like, you're going to have to go through more chemotherapy and radiation to make sure your body stays suppress that my own immune response doesn't fight off these cells, these stem Mm -hmm. cells as they make their home in my body. Mm -hmm. And so the chemotherapy and radiation were even more intense this time. I lost all my hair and all that. Like it was just constantly sick from this treatment. Mm -hmm. I remember that during this time, I believe it was like a 60, the the plan was we're going to, it's going to be 60 days after that. And I think it was a lot longer than that because of setbacks. Right. I was getting sick all the time. I mm. would have to, I'd got, I'd have to be admitted into the hospital as an inpatient to deal with these infections because mm. if unchecked, that would, that would kill me. Mm-hmm. Even though that the stem cell transplant was over, I was still super vulnerable and I would remain to be for like maybe a year post-transplant. Mm. What was the moment or, you know, the deciding factor about when you could finally leave Baltimore and go back to Downingtown? I don't remember entirely. I think it was, I think the the standard was based on my blood counts. We yeah. would always draw my blood, see my platelet levels, my red blood cells, and especially my white blood cells. Mm-hmm. And over time, slowly but surely, they would, I remember that the first blood draw post-transplant, every, every zeros across the board. There's like, yeah, there's nothing in here yet. <laughs> but slowly over the summer, summer of 2018, those numbers would creep up each time they'd draw my labs. Mm-hmm. And eventually it reached a threshold where Dr. Brodsky was like, this is good enough for you to not be under con- our constant watch. You can go back back to Downingtown, back to home. Mm-hmm. And we'll continue to monitor. You'll still have to follow up often, but mm-hmm. it is safe enough for you to return back home. And do you remember what that was like for you? Like the first day you got back home, your first night in your bed? I wish I could remember entirely. It's like 
uh, so much of that experience is like sort of repressed by my memory yeah, right yeah, my brain yeah. my brain has since moved on and filled it up with other life experiences <laughs> but thank I, god yeah <laughs> i think I think it's been, I think it was also very anticlimactic. It was, it was near the end of the summer and I was cleared to go back to school actually, although I'd have to take a lot of precautions. I was still on a lot of outpatient medications, but I remember I came home and it was just like, all right, got to go do this summer reading. (laughs) I think that, I think that was, I think that was the extent of it. It wasn't, it wasn't um, a huge deal. Uh, so also... yes, you went because you were going into your senior year, right? Mm-hmm. So this happened. This happened. It started the middle of your junior year, throughout the rest of your junior year, over the summer between your junior and senior year. But like you did not miss a beat, right? Like somehow you stayed on track and you graduated on time, right? Yeah, I did. But like there was a lot of like lot of little helps along the way like yeah. I would I would miss school left and right during my senior year because kids get sick at school and especially yeah. for me I would get sick all the time and mm-hmm. I'd always have to miss school and I remember that like it wasn't sure it wasn't a setback in terms of schooling I still graduated on time with my class but it was very a setback emotionally and yeah. socially right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like during that summer, I in my head before everything happened, it was supposed to be the best summer ever. I just had my license. I was mm. gonna drive around with my friends, have a lot of fun. Didn't do any of that. And when I came back, I couldn't hang out with my friends usually. Mm. I would see them at school on the days I was there, and that was kind of it. I mm. wouldn't. They wouldn't see me on the weekends and all that. So that was, although medically. I was getting better. I don't know if I could say the same about mentally. I, that's That was the hardest part for me. Even mm-hmm. though I went through all that treatment and all that, all the stuff physically, the hardest part was over. But I think that year was very hard for me mentally. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, I can only imagine that. I mean, because you still have to wrap your head around the fact that you could have died. And mm-hmm. then all of the procedures and the process and then also just that you're not done yet like you still have to stay on on immunosuppressants and you still have to keep going back to Hopkins and every time you cough or sneeze like the world has to stop for a second so yeah Uh yeah, I mean the, the weight of that was just huge so but you did graduate and oh by the way like Thank God this happened in 2019. Like, what if this happened in 2020 in the middle of the pandemic? Yeah, that I can't, I can't even imagine. I cannot imagine what would happen mm-hmm. with that. So, is yeah. So, man, you really had kind of like a shitty stretch of years there because you you just started to get better. I mean, you're finally like okay, graduate, right? Um, get into pit. You're going to go to college and then you're barely in college and the pandemic happens, right? Yeah. <laughs> when you put it like that. Yeah. That was a, that was a bad run right there. Of a couple yeah. <laughs> like three or four years of just like, um, but so obviously you, you went to college, you graduated from college. You are amazing. And I would like just 
you know, as an aside for my patients listening, Jake is now my scribe. So you'll see him in the office for this year. Next year, he's going to go to med school. He's going to be a doctor. He's going to give back all that good stuff. But when, like, when would you say you finally felt normal? And now I, I actually do mean mentally because physically, like it probably was an evolution, right? Or, or would you say, or, or are you like, maybe you're not yet and that's okay. I would say I'm normal, relatively, <laughs> as much normal as I can be. It was it was definitely like a process of getting over that. And for a while, it was a lot of survivor's guilt in a way. I was like, why was I so lucky mm-hmm. to get this? There's so many factors that had to go right. So mm-hmm. many things had to line up for me to still be here. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It was just, especially when... I think during my freshman year of college, there was just a lot of remorse. I was like, am I wasting this opportunity that mm. I got and the second mm. chance? I like, which was very like harsh on my, I was being very harsh to myself for thinking yeah, that yeah. Way in the first place. Yeah. And I think just over time, you slowly, you slowly just accept that this is my second chance and I'm not going to waste it. Right. Mm. Like, in order to get over the survivor's guilt, right? Whether you like it or not, you were given this chance, right? So don't just sit around moping about it. Do right. something about it. Do Make a something. difference, right? Yeah. Don't waste that chance that you've given. So I think capitalizing on that over the five years since transplant, I think that's really what helped me recover mentally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because physically, physically, I was fine. After, after one year post-transplant, when we stopped all of those outpatient medications Mm. i haven't done anything since then and the only time that i go to hopkins is every year just to basically catch up with dr brodsky (laughs) and when my mom and i when my mom and i drive down there to for our annual check-in we don't really even talk medicine we just he just just wants to know what's going on in my life i love it which is why we also love dr brodsky it's just such a personal relationship with him so yeah mentally I mean, physically, I was fine after one year, but mentally it took a lot longer. And I think that finding fulfilling ways to satisfy the second chance at life has helped me tremendously. So can we talk about the physically at one year thing? Because one year post-transplant, like practically to the day or month, right? You did something. What did you do one year after your transplant? You did an amazing physical feat that many people will not do. I I wasn't falling there for a second. um, Yeah, one year on the day. It was so from May 4th, 2018 to May 4th, 2019. On that one year anniversary, we all ran Broad Street in Philadelphia. So 10 miles through the city. And so that was a really cool moment because... I was in amongst a crowd of thousands of different people and right. I didn't have a care. Like throughout that whole year, I was always scared of getting sick. I had to take so many precautions, but then that day I ran without like a care in the world of any germs or cooties or whatever. <laughs> and that was a very cathartic experience, especially crossing the finish line. That was yeah. awesome. I mean, you know, I think you were under playing it a little bit because you didn't just wake up on your one year anniversary and go, I'm going to go run 10 miles today. Like you had to train for that. And you, you had to take a body that had been 
literally beaten down over months and months and months of drugs and radiation and being bedridden and all that stuff, and then turn it into a body that could physically run 10 miles and run it in a very, very respectable time, (laughs) I might add. So that is just... uh, That is just amazing to me. And I think it is exactly what you said. You chose to capitalize on that opportunity that you were given. And so many people could take a lesson from you. But I think if, I mean, your story is just an amazing story. I think anybody who is facing something as a teen should listen to this because it may seem like you're stuck in this moment and you're never going to get out of it, but there is life on the other side and it's great and it's going to be fulfilling and awesome. Um, But also the bone marrow thing I think is huge. So again, we'll go back to the fact that you were very fortunate that your brother was, you know, a near perfect match or a perfect match for what you needed. Uh, but others are not so fortunate. And there are so many conditions besides aplastic anemia that could be cured or treated with stem cell transplants or bone marrow transplants. But we can't do that if we don't have donors. So let's talk about this last passion project you've got going on here to kind of make a difference there. Yeah, 100%. So simply put, I want to make sure that there are more second chances for more people. And like you were saying, there's so many different conditions out there in which The treatment protocol is let's get you some new stem cells and kind of start fresh on your immune system. Mm -hmm. And that number is just increasing as stem cell transplant, like technology and treatment plans get better. More people are going to undergo that to solve whatever diseases or conditions that they have. Mm -hmm. And so this whole idea about bone marrow drives came up while I was applying for medical schools over the summer. Because a lot of schools ask about diversity. Like, what do you, what are you doing to help with diversity in our nation, help with health equity for patients all throughout the country? And something that really struck in mind for me was that fact that was always lingering in my head that like, the what if, what if Justin wasn't a donor for me? What if I had to depend on that less than 50% chance? Like, that mm-hmm. that chances were worse than flipping a coin. Mm-hmm. That stinks. That was awful. Yeah. And I remember I wrote on a lot of my essays that if I get into med school, I want to run bone marrow drives like anywhere in public so that people can register regardless of ethnicity. What like the ethnicity dilemma aside, the lack of it, we need more bone marrow donors in general. So anyone from any race or ethnicity can register. And I wanted to be a proponent of that, give people the education and awareness that this this ability to save someone's life is available. And as I was writing these essays saying to these schools, yeah, one day I plan on doing this. I was <laughs> I came to the realization to myself, like, why can't I do this now? What's stopping me from doing this now? Right. I don't need to be enrolled <laughs> in a medical school to get this done. Right. And so I reached out to two different registries, Be The Match, and this other one called DKMS. They're two non-for-profit organizations that are in our country that Mm -hmm. contribute to these national bone marrow registries. Mm -hmm. And all I simply asked is, can I host a drive? And both places gave me a resounding, yes, please, actually, (laughs) we would love for you to do this. And... So that's what we're going to proceed with um, 
So uh, let's talk the details about that because yeah. uh, people listening, this was completely a shameless plug for what Jake <laughs> is about to tell you. This whole thing was literally just a sob story to get you all to show up to our bone marrow drive at CMMD. Take it away, Jake. When is it happening? Yeah, the cat's out of the bag. That's <laughs> that's what we're trying to be here for. Um, this is happening October 8th. From, it's a Sunday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. at our practice. Mm-hmm. And this is coinciding with, we we have set this up so that this is coinciding with what we're calling our Shocktoberfest. So where a lot of people come to get their flu shots. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be there. And hopefully my brother Justin's going to be there too. Uh, he has a, he's a busy He's a busy student right now, but if he has the time, <laughs> he's going to be there too. And we're just going to be having this table here with all of these different kits in which people can come and swab their cheeks to register into these bone marrow, bone marrow organizations. That is amazing. So you heard it here first, folks. So we're doing our flu shot clinic at CMOD in Exton. You can check out our website. And at that clinic, we're going to have a bone marrow registry table set up so you could just come up swab your cheek and call it a day that's literally all you have to do and i would like to up the ante a little bit jake so let's say that for anybody that comes up to your table and actually swabs their cheek we will give them a five dollar coupon for something i don't know what yet i haven't figured it out but let's say dunkin donuts wawa something okay (laughs) so i mean who can't use five bucks of whatever. So please come out to Shottoberfest. If you're getting your flu shot, great. Even if you're not, just come out. It'll take you two seconds and you could save a life uh, like Jakey's or, you know, millions of other people who really need stem cells and bone marrow. Jake, thank you so much. You were so brave to share your story. Thank you for letting me be a part of it and for embarrassing you and, you know, <laughs> all that stuff. But it will be for a good cause. Um, for all of my listeners, thank you so much for staying tuned for this extremely special episode for me. One of my favorites. Um, I hope you'll come out to see us Shottober, October 8th. Come get your cheek swabbed and... As an aside, if you have a story you want to share with me, please email me, Christine, at christinemeyermd.com. Thanks, Jake. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Are you ready to join our conversation? Just go to Facebook and search Christine Meyer MD. Follow us to join 14,000 other people committed to creating better conversations in healthcare.